everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Duke Law Professor Brandon Garrett, whose book, Convicting the Innocent, is one of the must-read classics of the innocence movement. Today, we're going to talk about his more recent book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one of the early trials I covered involved a case where the public defender challenged the science of the fingerprint analysis. And at the time I had, of course, this was about a decade or so ago, Mm -hmm. uh, thought fingerprints were pretty bulletproof uh, as these things go. But the more I've read about it, uh, the more I realized that the actual identification process uh, is a lot more art than science, um, which I'm I think gu- a lot of people... I'm guessing it didn't go well at the hearing you were watching where the uh, public defender was challenging the fingerprints. They, they didn't win the challenge. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, and then no one did really, right? There have been a handful of judges that have raised questions about fingerprinting. And over time, what happened was initially was the FBI going into courtrooms around the country saying there is a zero percent error rate here. This is perfection. And so judge like we've done our own internal studies. Actually, when people looked at those internal studies, they thought, well, well, wow, that's actually garbage. Um, But uh, they went from courtroom to courtroom, particularly in the late 90s, and said, this is you, you can't get better than this. This is, this is not just reliable, it's, it's perfection itself. When, when, unless someone is incompetent or trying to commit a fraud using fingerprinting, this is a, this is a method which is, I mean, come on, fingerprints are unique. Uh, there's zero error rate. And so judges, some judges said, well, you know, we're judges, we don't believe everything we're told, but uh, it sounds like if there is any unreliability here, it must be very, very, very low. We, what we, we understand, based on uh, past experience of this being in the court system for you know, many decades, uh, that this is, there's almost no error rate here. And so, so we let it in. Um, and it was all sort of made up and judges sort of like hearing what they heard and what else are they supposed to rely on and just sort of saying, well, you know, just because people claim that there could be problems with this, we see no evidence of that because it's never gone wrong. That's what the FBI says, zero error rate. And of course, we've learned since that in fact, the fingerprinting, just like anything else, if you're just eyeballing patterns and saying they seem to line up, that's not a science. Um, that's, you know, uh, fun for, you know, kids' puzzles and things like that. And some people are good at looking at patterns and some people aren't. 
Um, and it certainly depends how good the person is, but just because lines line up on a smudged fingerprint doesn't mean it came from a particular source. Like we now have databases and automated ways of doing analyses. None of that existed in the world of fingerprinting and it still doesn't. And so more recently, more serious studies have been done and they found real error rates. And it also depends kind of how challenging is the print, how smudged is it, and how good is this person who's looking at these patterns, how good are they at recognizing patterns and matching them? And, um, and so we've learned a lot of terrifying things and, and, and it's still like fingerprints, there's a lot of good information in fingerprints. Like that's, that's really useful evidence, especially as compared to some other things which our judges also let in every day in our courtrooms, like bite mark comparisons or, or actually much more common are uh, firearms and tool mark comparisons. There are a lot of crimes involving guns in this country. And same thing, or lining up scratch marks, lining up smudges, lining up the patterns and saying, oh, it's a match. And what does that mean? How, how, and, and, and even if you're right that it's a match, uh, what's the uncertainty? What's the error rate? No one knows. Have any studies been done? Well, actually, more recently, they have been, and the error rates are terrifyingly high. But, but all of this is news to most of us in the public and to judges and, and lawyers, too. Um, and, uh, and that was part of the reason I wrote this book. So... Are fingerprints actual, actually unique, or have we just assumed that? Uh, it could be. I mean, they're really detailed patterns. We've assumed it. But let, let's take something that was designed to be unique. It's not like a natural pattern. Uh, well, and, and by the way, also, like, you know, some some people, like people who actually work with their hands, unlike like someone like me who just types and teaches, um, like, you can have abrasion on your fingertips and the patterns can change over time. For the most part, they don't change if you're, you know, a, a professor or a white collar worker or someone who isn't doing lots of things that are really, really rough on the hands. Um, then, okay, it's a pattern that doesn't change and it's a really detailed pattern. But still, we have other detailed patterns. Um, each license plate on a vehicle is unique. Like I'm the only one in North Carolina that has, actually, I don't remember my license plate offhand, but let's say it begins with like JDL, um, I'm the only, whatever it is, JDL 3100 North Carolina. But can you make a unique match to my license plate if the first letter and the last number are obscured, if you only catch the middle numbers? Um, you can actually say something because you know how many license plates are issued. Like how many just have the middle numbers? Like the DL3O. Um, you can say something about that, but you're missing information. Now with fingerprints, if we're missing some part of the fingerprint and all, it's smudged, like there's just parts that are missing. Uh, it's not like a license plate where we know how many letters or digits or whatever are missing. And we can say something about, okay, well, how many, just, how many licenses in North Carolina began with a J? Like what are the odds you have a J license plate? Maybe that's only a few hundred thousand people. Maybe in the city of Durham, it's only 5,000 people. So that tells us something. You're one out of the 5,000, that's pretty good. Well, with fingerprints, are you one out of 5,000 if you have these like set of characteristics, if it's in general shaped like a whirl as opposed to a loop, we don't know. We have no statistics. There are no statistics. And if you don't have statistics, you can't say anything about how common or rare it is to share some characteristics. Uh, we can do that for other things, like for, for firearms. If it's like a certain caliber bullet, we can say something about how popular is that caliber. Like how many people have like whatever it is, like uh, a, a shotgun of a certain gauge, or if it's a shoe print, how many people have like a size 10 sneaker? 
I don't know, like, I think we do know something in general about like average sizes of feet. And if certainly if someone has like a size 15 sneaker, wow, that's like, that's a really big foot. That tells you something. Um, but how many people who have like a common shoe size, like a 10 and a half, like me, um, bought a particular brand, maybe we can do that. But how many people who own a shoe like that have particular wear marks on the bottom of their shoe? How many people, um, you know, own their shoes for a few months and so they're pretty worn down? We have no idea. How many, you know, bullets of a particular caliber would be expected to have these types of scratch marks? Um, in the past, firearms examiners would just say, well, it's unique. And so like if, if it's, this is a unique 22 caliber uh, bullet because it left these scratch marks. Well, could another one have left that? Well, maybe. Uh, how many others could have left it? We don't know. And, and that's true of all these pattern matching disciplines. And unfortunately, a lot of what crime labs do is this kind of pattern matching stuff where they're literally just eyeballing the patterns and reaching these conclusions about it without any uncertainty or anything like that. To just give another example, I'm sure you all know from your personal lives that even something that's really objective involves some degree of judgment when a person does it. And we need to know how good is the person. So one example is measuring tape. And I know that I'm one of the people in my family that is less good at measuring a piece of furniture to figure out like, could another chair fit there? Or could another couch fit there? Like measuring tape, like it's a ruler, okay? It's objective. Like we've all agreed as a society, uh, you know, uh, like how big is a foot? How big is 10 feet? But when it involves like holding the measuring tape on one side of something and then pulling it to the other side and what if the first thing moves? Some people are more careful about that and take into account the distance to the wall or whatever, or they tape it down on one side so it doesn't move when you pull it to the other side. Like there, there's human measurement error, even if you're using a ruler. But what's the human measurement error if you're not measuring anything objective, if you're not measuring anything particularly clear? If you're just like looking at stuff and saying, I think that's enough, maybe it's a match. That's, if we don't even know what's being measured, if we don't even know what counts as an error or what counts as good judgment, and then we're outside of science. We're outside of measurement. We're outside of science. We're just making judgment calls. And even that is okay because we rely on experts and we're not totally sure with everything they're doing. They're doing some things based on their experience, their judgment. Fine. We can rely on people's judgment and experience if we test them with realistic and challenging tests and we find out how good they are at their, at their job. And so if, if the fingerprint examiner says, look, I'm doing my own internal thing, they could consult a Ouija board for all we care if they get it right every time. And how do we know if they get it right every time? Well, we don't test them. So that's, that's the final problem. And, uh, and I've thrown a lot of problems out there, but they're, they're all really important. We need to know if the method's any good, even if it involves some subjectivity. Um, well, we still need to know whether the person using it is any good. Because if it's not just a ruler, if there's the human involved, then how good is this particular human? Uh, we also need to know how good is their lab. They could have bad practices, which encourage people to perform badly. But even if this is like good procedure, good lab, well, how good is this human examiner? Have, are they even tested? And we, we often don't even know that. There, there, there's, no, there's really hardly any labs in the country that are doing serious demanding blind tests to find out how good the people are. And so if, if, if you're a juror in a criminal case and you're hearing you know, a forensic examiner talk about the, these types of evidence, you should ask, have a lot of questions running through your head and you should be hoping that the lawyers bring out the answers uh, because 
because it's not enough to just be told, oh, I made a call, it's a match. And this is not an academic exercise, no pun intended, but I mean. No, unfortunately I'm a, I'm a law professor, but uh, I study things that matter a lot to people's lives because what happens in court decides whether someone goes to prison for many years or, or not. And, you know, going back to the fingerprint issue, um, you know, we, we know the Brandon Mayfield case. Um, I mean, are there other wrong calls that you're aware of in fingerprint analysis? Yes, there, there, there are many other known cases. The Brandon Mayfield one is really well known in the United States because it was such a high profile FBI error. Um, there have been DNA exonerations in cases involving fingerprinting. I give some examples of those in my book. Some of them involve making the wrong call where you match the print to an innocent person. Uh, but some of them also involve ignoring fingerprints that show that the defendant is innocent. That's obviously really important too. If you could have cleared the person's name looking at the fingerprint, um, that, that could have prevented a wrongful conviction as well. There have been high profile fingerprint errors in other countries, There's a high profile case in Scotland involving a police officer. Um, there have been you know, entire fingerprint units investigated, audited. And, uh, and that said, for a lot of these disciplines, we have no idea how often it goes right or wrong because no one is, no one's reviewing the evidence. No one looks at it. Um, in many cases, there's just like a one-page report saying fingerprint. It was an ID. And the actual work that was done isn't documented. There's nothing for someone else to look at to figure out, well, why did they conclude that the fingerprint's an ID? What did they rely on? Is it right? Um, there's no record of that. Um, and most criminal cases these days, there's no trial where you ask the fingerprint examiner on the stand, like, well, how many points did you find? How did you pick those points? Uh, it looks like there might be some differences. How do you explain those? Uh, you know, how well-trained are you? Do you uh, what were you told about this case? Were you told that this fingerprint match was really important in a murder case? Or did you just look at the patterns without having any idea what, and no biasing information? You didn't know the cr defendant's criminal history. You didn't know that he confessed. You didn't know his race. Did you know any of that? Most cases have none of that. There's no trial, there's no hearing, there's a guilty plea. And so fingerprint examiners might assume that they have a perfect record because all their cases result in convictions, but that may be because 95% of criminal cases in this country are plea bargained and there is no trial. No one is ever questioning the evidence. Even worse, when cases do go to trial, it's just sort of terrifying how little lawyers prepare for trial. And we hear from, you know, I, I, when I talk to lab examiners, they say, you know, Neither the defense nor the prosecution talks to us before a trial. They don't prepare. You know, like lawyers like me don't have a science background. Math, science is kind of stressful. We don't like to get into it. And so these examiners say, like, even when there's a trial, like, no one asks us serious questions. And that's what you see when you read forensic transcripts, which I do quite a bit. Even in cases where we know something terrible went wrong, you know, someone was exonerated, you read the transcript and they're like a few pages long. Mostly it's just the examiner describing their credentials and what they did and their lab practices. But then when it comes to the lawyers actually asking tough questions, they say like, so you found a match? The person says, oh, yes, I did. And the defense lawyer says, oh, so you really mean that you found a match? That's what I said. Okay, no questions. Talk about the role of confirmation bias and pattern matching. In general, by the way, right? So people assume that science is objective and impartial. And look, we have labs that they do like experiments and study things in this objective scientific way. 
Crime labs don't work that way. In clinical labs, if you get like a strep test uh, or these days a COVID test, we're not worried that the person at the lab like might have some like interest in finding us like to have COVID. Like they, they want us to miss work. They want us to self, you know, isolate at home. They want to, they're probably just out to get us. And so they're going to say, oh yeah, that, that, that guy has COVID. No, no, no. They're just like, they're like in part running machines, looking at results or whatever. These are like medical professionals and their job is to give people correct medical information. And they're subject to regulations and things to make sure that they're doing things objectively. So that's what, how we, what we associate with labs, right? Uh, crime labs don't work that way. Um, they are typically part of law enforcement. Their budget comes from law enforcement, even if they're not like in the basement of a police department. Uh, traditionally, these were police crime labs that were just like, you know, officers are on desk duty. Today, there are more people with a scientific background, unfortunately, people with forensic science degrees, at least, who are at labs. But their budget still comes from law enforcement. Their client is law enforcement. They report to law enforcement. Even some of the labs that are quasi-independent or claim some independent status, their client is law enforcement. They will share their documents with the defense if a court orders it, and that's it. Um, and so not, not only is there just sort of this bias in the structure where like, this is their job, like their client, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's bad if they have backlogs and law enforcement is waiting. It's not bad if their work is of uncertain quality and they might be delivering incorrect results. Like, no, 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 law enforcement wants results quickly. And, and the quality of those results, well, that's, that's, not, that's not our job. Our job is to turn things around fast for law enforcement. Um, but there's also all sorts of biasing information. So police officers are the client and or prosecutors are the client. And even just on the evidence request forms, when they send something in for testing, they may say stuff about the person's criminal record. Did they confess? What's the person's race? Um, what happened at the crime scene? Not just, here's some fingerprints, look at them, compare them to others. Um, here's some cartridges, see if they came from any known weapons. Um, and uh, we, we know that errors have occurred in cases where there was more than that. There was back and forth, the detective calling, saying like, we need this now. You know, we have this guy confessing over here. Uh, we, need, we, we need the fingerprint match. Like that's gonna seal the deal. Or, and this has come up in some of the DNA cases I've looked at, you know, um, don't, don't test this stuff for DNA. We have this person confessing. Stop your work, we're good. Like we don't need any forensics here. Just, just stop, just stop. We don't wanna know about those hairs. We don't wanna know about those fingerprints because we're good. This case is closed now, the person confessed. Uh, all of those things happen in every different direction uh, because uh, the, the crime lab analyst or examiner is not often seen as a scientist, but as, as my friend Sandy Thompson put it really well, as a cop in a lab coat, part of the investigative team. And, and we're, we're trying to make a case here where you were following strict orders from, from law enforcement. Those norms have somewhat improved, but, but not, not enough. So there are all kinds of biases that can affect the results in cases, and they have in, in cases that we know have gone wrong. And why aren't we doing these testing and kind of, you know, the scientifically approved double blind uh, where we've calculated error rates and things like that? In the past, like I was saying, you know, a lot of forensic disciplines, uh, they would just say, well, we know that this work is reliable because uh, through experience, through experience of doing this, you know, we haven't had errors come to our attention. Uh, or in my, my experience, you still see this to this day, there may be error rate studies done, but those are just studies. Like, 
I've never made a mistake. No one ever told, told me I made a mistake. Uh, so in recent years, the insistence of scientists has led to at least some studies done where people are given tests and, you know, all this stuff can be tested. Like which of these fingerprints uh, that were found at the crime scene came from fingerprint subject A or B. Um, and even that is simpler than in real life where you don't, you know, which of these fingerprints from a crime scene may, you may not have a sub suspect in mind. You may have a database search. You don't know how likely it is that A or B had anything to do with this. Um, but, uh, uh, or did any of these like cartridges come from gun A or gun B or gun C or something like that? And uh, in the past, realistic tests weren't really given. When they've done larger scale studies uh, more recently, they found real error rates, like shockingly high error rates in fingerprints and firearms, really big error rates. Um, not only that, but there are even bigger error rates when you have these examiners take these studies and they know that they're being tested. So that's, that's already not as challenging as in real life where you don't think you're being tested. You don't know that anyone is going to re review your work with any care, especially if this is like one of the first studies being done in your discipline, you know it's a big deal for the discipline um, and it's a big deal for your profession and you shouldn't make mistakes. So a lot of errors in these cases have been errors where they say it's inconclusive. This evidence is challenging. Uh, it's not of enough quality maybe. So I, I'm not gonna reach a conclusion. Now these studies were studies done where the, there are correct answers, yes or no. And so, uh, but, but in these disciplines, they, they, what they've said is, well, no, 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 inconclusive, that doesn't, that doesn't count as an error. I'm just declining to answer the question. Of course, that, that wouldn't work for our kids if they're taking a quiz at school and they say, I, I didn't answer the questions on this test because uh, I thought that they were vague, I, I didn't understand. Uh, and uh, so I chose not to answer any of the questions. That, that's how I got a perfect score by not answering any of the questions. Well, that, that's what forensic examiners have done. And like a, some of these firearm studies, for example, you have like 30%, 40% inconclusives. Um, those are huge error rates. And in real life, if you say the evidence is inconclusive and you could be potentially excluding an innocent person or, or convicting a guilty person based on the evidence, like that's a big deal to just say, oh, I'm not gonna look at it inconclusive. Um, in real life, sort of manipulating findings and saying, oh, it's inconclusive, so we didn't make a mistake. That's what caused the DC crime lab to be shut down. Its accreditation is still suspended because of an inconclusive, which had enormous significance. It was used to cover up an error. Anyway, uh, these studies have found high error rates, really high in firearms, surprisingly high in fingerprinting, although much lower. Um, and we need to do these across, across all the disciplines. My view is we shouldn't be letting stuff in court if we don't have these error rate studies and don't at least have a baseline. Now, just because it's possible to make mistakes using a forensic method doesn't mean we keep it out of court. It means you tell the lawyers, tell the judges, tell the jurors about this uncertainty. And so it's, you know, let it in, but, but, but the jurors need to know that, yeah, the error rate could be as high as one in 16. Uh, and so you need, the, that's the size of a grain of salt that you need. And by the way, it, the error rate could be higher depending on how challenging the evidence is in this case and depending on how good this particular examiner is. So let's find out how well this examiner is tested. And, is this a high quality print or you know, cartridge or whatever, or is it low quality? Give the jurors information they need to, or the judge or, or certainly the lawyers if they're pre-bargaining to know whether this is, oh, this is a really good measurement. Um, this is really good information that tells you a lot about guilt or innocence, or actually, no, this is kind of weak. Um, that's what we want. I've done a lot of mock jury studies, like people who serve as jurors, they really wanna know how strong the evidence is. We don't have a problem in this country of people 
uncritically accepting science and believing whatever people with scientific backgrounds say, that is not our problem. Like we are, Americans are very skeptical of experts. We don't trust experts. We want to know how good they are. That's what, what comes out loud and clear when you study jurors. And I've studied, you know, tens of thousands of jurors at this point. I talk about some of the studies in my book. People want to know, like, how good is this person who says they're an expert? How good is the evidence? We just need to give them that information. And it'll cause jurors, like, if, it's a, if it really is a genuinely very strong match uh, or identification or whatever words they're using, jurors don't care what the words are. Uh, if, it's a really, if it's really strong evidence, it'll be a really strong conviction. If it's weak, then, then good. Prosecutors should know that they need to dig up more evidence. And, and that's what we want. We want jurors to actually do their job and, and do their job in an informed way. So we, we can do that. We've done that in other areas. We just have never really cared in criminal cases because, oh, those are just people charged with crimes. Other than DNA evidence, um, is there any forensic technique that's really passed this test? Other than DNA, uh, yeah, a lot of people think that DNA, certain types of DNA testing is highly objective and based on population statistics, and you can reach really clear results. Unfortunately, lots of DNA tests in the real world are not like the clear DNA exclusions you have in exoneration cases. They're not like sexual assault cases where you have like one male contributor to a sexual assault sample. It's more like, I'm holding a pen now, uh, we're on audio I know, but like how many people touched this pen when I left it out uh, in the coffee room at work? Um, could it just have been me? Uh, but if there are a couple other profiles there, other people use the pen, how many, is it two, is it three, is it four? Do we need to know like, how many people had access to that coffee room? What kind of coffee room was it? You need outside information potentially, but is it biasing information? Is it objective? There's a judgment call involved when you have a DNA mixture and you're trying to interpret it. Um, and you may need to know other information about the case and the situation. Then all of a sudden you're dealing with lots of subjectivity and interpretation. And unfortunately in real criminal cases, it's not always so clean where oh, it's the mask that the perpetrator was wearing and it's one male's DNA, and that's it. Test it, find out whose DNA that was. That's a clear-cut silver bullet DNA case. We have those, and it's, it's wonderful for the justice system when, when evidence is easy, but in the real world, sometimes it's hard. And then with DNA, you have to interpret the results. And you have these same questions about who's the interpreter? Do they work for law enforcement? What were they told? Were they told the information that they needed to do their analysis or were they told all sorts of extra biasing stuff? And in the DNA world as well, there are, especially with these bias issues and interpretation issues, they're, they're not clear ground rules. Last year on, on uh, the Netflix series, uh, The Innocence Files, they, they had uh, the dentist, uh, the forensic dentist who, uh, who gets up there and he's kind of mocking all these, these errors. Uh, I mean, is bite mark analysis, is there any validity to it or are we just doing it wrong right now? It's not clear that there's any real, again, I would say like, if there's a study showing that it's reliable, then, then perhaps it could be useful. Um, even bite mark evidence might be reliable to potentially exclude people, but, but actually this, what, what little research has been done suggests that we even have a hard time telling whether something is a human bite mark. I mean, if any of you have had toddlers that are biters and I had both kids go through that phase. Um, as, as dentists say, like skin is an elastic medium. Sometimes it just looks like some red stuff when they, on your arm when, when a kid bites you. And, and was that just a bruise because you got punched or was it a bite? 
or was it a bug bite and not a human bite? If we can't even tell if something is a human bite, then sort of game over for the discipline. And so until studies are done suggesting that people can, number one, say whether it was a human bite or not with reliability, and number two, say some things about which human made the bite, then we, we can't use it. Um, if the studies are done and, it's, and there's, some, there's a there there and we can get something useful out of it for criminal cases and we can quantify what's the uncertainty, how good is this evidence, and depending on the circumstances, great. We all want to use tools to, to get things right in the criminal system. Uh, but we don't have that for bite mark evidence. And that's why scientists have said this should be on hold. We shouldn't be using this until we know how reliable it is, since what we do know is somewhat terrifying in terms of unreliability. That's what the Texas Forensic Science Commission said to its credit. And in no other jurisdiction in this entire country are courts putting a freeze on bite mark evidence. I think the only thing that is stopping us from convicting vast numbers of people based on unsound bite mark evidence is the good luck that not that many criminal cases uh, have uh, some theory of a bite involved. And so if we uh, were convicting kids in uh, first grade or kindergarten based on biting, and you have lots of kids running around and you had to identify biters, if we actually did that a lot in this country, uh, there would be a lot of little toddlers in, uh, in wrongful toddler detention. But fortunately, uh, biting situations among adults are much less common or even just plausible. Maybe there was a bite here situations. And so we've lucked out. Uh, and, uh, and, it, and it doesn't feel so lucky for people like my friend Keith Harward and many other exonerees who spent decades of their lives in prison for crimes that they didn't commit. And nevertheless, to this day, courts still allow bite mark evidence. So that's sort of exhibit A for how you can have a discipline of totally uncertain validity. Uh, where we have no idea whether even the fundamental premises, like this is a bite that we can then look at, uh, a human bite. Uh, we don't even have that, and yet courts still let it in. So we have, we have a lot of work to do in this country. All right. Well, uh, we are out of time, uh, but I wanted to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing a little bit of your work. That's a treat. Thank you. Brandon Garrett. He's the author of the book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab. Uh, I want to um, thank you for coming on. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justice for George Powell, all one word, dot com.